According to the chair of Miami-Dade Democrats, the giveaway was that nobody was wearing a guayabera, the light, short-sleeved shirt popular in Cuba and across the Caribbean, and a staple in Miami. The mob-harassing election officials in November 2000 were from out of town. The Wall Street Journal described them as 50-year-old white lawyers with cell phones and Hermes ties. Their blue blazers were standard issue for Republicans in Washington. The episode became known as the Brooks Brothers Riot after the preppy outfitter. The fashion faux pas and the low-tech tactics make it seem quaint, but it had a sinister side. The mob managed to thwart a court-ordered recount, thus ensuring that George W. Bush would become the next president. Now, once again, votes are being recounted in a state where the president's margin of victory was slim, and election administrators are being threatened. But this time, it's almost eight months after the election was over. This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prudeau, The Economist's US editor, and each week we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, is America's election system under threat? Election administration used to be a sleepy corner of American bureaucracy. Now it's the latest arena for extreme polarization, as Republicans continue to challenge the legitimacy of last year's result. An unprecedented vote audit in Arizona and threats to election officials continue to undermine trust in the democratic process. Has the threat to American elections increased since Donald Trump left office? In this episode, we'll report on the astonishing events in Arizona, hear from a top election expert, and from former Republican Senator Jeff Flake. With me to chew over all of this is Idris Kaloun, The Economist's Washington correspondent, and John Fasman, the US digital editor. Idris, it was very nice to see you in New York and DC last week. How are you doing? What's been going on since then? Oh, things have been going well. Uh, there's a bit of heat, but it was nothing like uh, what I experienced in Arizona. So it all puts it into perspective. Okay, good to hear it. John, how about you? You're on the West Coast. Yeah, I've been reporting in California this week, which has been lovely. And I'm struck as ever by two things. These are both, I guess, banal observations to anyone in California. But anytime I come out here, it feels like the future is being made here. And I'm just struck by the the sort of dynamism and optimism of businesses here, especially in the tech sector. And the second is I contrived yesterday to drive down from San Francisco to LA on the coast road. And uh, just the scale of natural beauty in this state dwarfs that of any other. And I say that as someone with deep affinity for Maine, but this state is really extraordinary. That's a trip I've always wanted to do. I'm very jealous. Highly recommend. Well, I wish both of you a happy 4th of July. And to all our listeners, we're marking the Independence Day holiday at The Economist this week with a warning about the state of American democracy. The cover has a Republican elephant stomping its foot and are opening up cracks in the earth that threaten to swallow up a ballot box. The leader line is based on your reporting, Idris. Tell us why you went to Arizona. Arizona is the site right now of something that's fairly unprecedented in American democracy. Biden very narrowly won in that state. And despite a few recounts, the Republican state Senate has now subpoenaed all of the ballots 
that were cast in Maricopa County, which includes Phoenix and is 60% of the state voting population, roughly. Right now, there are volunteers that have just finished counting by hand all 2.1 million ballots that were cast in Maricopa County. The volunteers that are being run by this firm, the Cyber Ninjas, who had never done an odd before, are searching and scrutinizing the ballots for things like bamboo fibers on this theory that some of the ballots were printed in an Asian country. They're scrutinizing them for food stains, the lack thereof, to prove perhaps that someone was filling them in while eating and perhaps was filling in many ballots, searching for a lack of fingerprints that might substantiate the idea that these were machine printed. All of this is going on right now. The uh, Veterans Memorial Coliseum, which is this huge stadium in Phoenix, has become a bit of a pilgrimage site for the Trumpiest Republicans in state legislatures. Uh, Delegations from some 10 states have already come to visit. They've gone back, and some of them are thinking about uh, starting their own, quote-unquote, audits in their own states. So what's going on there is, is a bit of a circus, but it's also, I think, an indication of what's happening to the party. The biggest champion of the audit is a woman named Kelly Ward, who is the head of the Arizona GOP. Hello, everyone. It is time for an update on America's audit. She won the contest to be in charge of the party, basically by hewing to a very Trumpy line. That was her her main line of attack. And her theory is that uh, what will be found is the truth, and the truth is probably going to be something like Donald Trump was robbed of his victory. The hand count appears to be finished with the exception of the Braille ballots that require a Braille expert, obviously, to be able to count them. The paper examination phase is continuing. This involves making sure that the fibers in the paper are consistent. She didn't agree to an interview, but uh, she does do very frequent updates on how the audit is going, which are available online and sort of oddly compelling. And they are using special microscopes to determine if those ovals were filled in by hand or if they could have been filled in by a printer or a machine of some sort. She devotes her time giving pedestrian updates on how many ballots have been counted, but also chucks a few volleys at her political opponents and the media as well. Despite the good work the auditors are doing here in Arizona, the naysayers, (laughs) they are still out in full force. Just a reminder, these are the same folks that tried to tell us that the COVID-19 virus did not come from a lab in Wuhan, China. That the park police used tear gas to clear Lafayette Square for President Trump. And that there was nothing, absolutely nothing, nothing to see here on Hunter Biden's laptop. All of those things are now viewed differently. We know the truth about them, and we're going to find out the truth about the 2020 election in Maricopa County. Kelly Ward didn't speak to me for this story, but one very interesting Republican I did get the chance to interview and who I thought made some some excellent points was a man by the name of Bill Gates. Uh, No, not that Bill Gates. Um, He's a member of the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors. He's a longtime Republican who was in charge, along with his other colleagues, for supervising the election that was held there. And he has been a vocal opponent of the audit that is going on. And he and his colleagues um, in local government have been some of the few lone Republicans who are in elected office who have been protesting against the audit and what it represents. 
I won't call it illegal, but it's an extra legal recount. It's not the state's audit. The only basis for it is a subpoena issued by the Senate Judiciary Chair with the assent of the Senate President. There's never been a vote. Plus, the governor has not approved of this in any way. This is a bizarre alignment of circumstances that led to this. And that's why I hope we won't see this in any other states. You can't do this and have a healthy, functioning democracy. You just can't. He told me he's really worried about what happens when Donald Trump is not reinstated, as some people think that he will be once these audits prove massive fraud. He's talked about the death threats that he's received for protesting the legitimacy of the election. And he says the fact that he's a solid Reaganite Republican who supports cutting taxes and tighter voter ID requirements won't matter because perceptions of the audit are all important. If you want to win a primary, you have to support this audit. This is the litmus test, which is kind of interesting because the Republican Party has maybe had a handful of litmus tests over the years. You know, I'm pro-life. That's irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Nobody cares that I'm pro-life right Mm -hmm. now because I won't bow to the big lie. You know, I I had seriously considered running for statewide office Mm -hmm. in 22. I can't. There's no way. Gates is worried that the GOP has lost its place a bit in America, that it was once the party of the rule of law and no longer seems to be. And by the end, he he also got a bit emotional in discussing where he thought his future would be and, and what the state of democracy in his home state is. How many times have we patted ourselves on the back as a democracy that we have this peaceful transition of power? And isn't that great? And Al Gore, after everything he went through, he acknowledged the decision in the U.S. Supreme Court. This former president does not acknowledge democratic norms and shape this party in his image. It really is sad. It really is sad. I thought, sir, when I was done here, you know, and my my retirement job would be going to, you know, Moldova or Kyrgyzstan or something and like being an election observer, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe getting involved in supporting some democratic movement in Belarus or something like that. I've always thought, like, that would be really cool. Mm -hmm. I never imagined that it would be here. I would do it here in Maricopa County. I don't need to go to Belarus. I got it right here. Idris, before talking about Bill Gates, who's terrific, I just want to go back to that Kelly Ward clip, which is truly wild. Can you explain to our listeners this fixation with fibres in the ballot papers? Uh, As far as I can tell, there was someone who was involved in the Arizona audit who suggested, based on a conspiracy theory that had been floating around on the internet, that um, some of the ballots that resulted in Biden winning in Arizona had to be flown in from an Asian country of unknown origin. Some people say China, some people say South Korea. And that man told the media that uh, the auditors were searching for fibers that might prove or disprove that theory. I believe that's the origin of it. But as you heard from uh, from Ward's update, they're looking for all manner of things, right? They're using microscopes and UV lights and lazy Susans 
all the equipment is is out. And actually, interestingly, since I did that reporting, the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors has said that they are going to replace the election machines that they gave for the audit, uh, thinking that they might now be compromised, which is obviously just a, another sign of how this audit has, I think, in the end, deepened distrust in the electoral system rather than saving it as it was intended to or, or premised on at least. Can I ask you to clarify one point? They're going to replace the voting machines because they fear that the auditors may have done something to rig future counts? Yes. The local officials said in a statement that the voters of Maricopa County can rest assured the county will never use equipment that could pose a risk to free and fair elections. As a result, the county will not use the subpoenaed equipment in any future elections. So the implication is that I believe, yes, they think that the the machines are compromised now. You mentioned to Bill Gates that there were legislators from other states down there. What other states are now considering audits? Where can we see things like this panning out in the next few months, do you think? Well, uh, wanting it and having it happen, I think, will be different because uh, in Arizona, as Gates mentioned, uh, it was done through subpoena and it required the assent of the Republican president of the state Senate. So in Pennsylvania, a delegation visited and upon returning has been agitating for an audit of this sort. And I think there's a bit more skepticism from the Republican leader there. There's a bit of skepticism from the Republican leaders in uh, Wisconsin, certainly, and I think also in Michigan. So that might limit the ability of these to actually go through. But if they were persuadable, then I think you, you might see something. There is also an ongoing case in Fulton County, which includes Atlanta, where a group alleging fraud has sued to be able to inspect all of the absentee ballots that are there. And that a judge initially ruled that they could do that, um, but there's still litigation pending on whether or not that'll happen. So there's certainly efforts to spread this methodology elsewhere. And of course, the risk is that if election integrity and, and election legitimacy is imperiled in one state, it might be imperiled in different ones as well. Idris, one of the things I found fascinating about your reporting from Arizona was the way you describe a whole infrastructure around the creation and then dissemination of alternative facts. To use one of the many phrases um, that the Trump administration gave the English language, this third inspection of the ballot papers in Maricopa County is being reported on exclusively from the floor of the Coliseum by One American News, uh, which is the most Trump-friendly news network. The anchor doing the reporting is fundraising for uh, election audits and is also a former Trump administration official. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that if you look at the state of alternative facts in the party right now, you see, if you poll Republicans, that two-thirds of them say you know, many months after the election, that Biden won illegitimately. In the immediate aftermath of the election, that was around 80%. So it's dropped a bit, but not very much. A recent study found that just under half of them said that it would be appropriate for a state to overrule the popular vote and award the electoral college votes to Trump in a state that Biden had won. And it's sometimes simple for people to say, well, you know, that's just that's just lunacy. But you have to also think about how belief formation works. And this gets to your point, which is that the Republican ecosystem right now is composed of a couple of centers of power. 
there's Trump, there are the elites, there's the base, there are the donors, and there's the conservative media. And increasingly, that's a closed loop. And I think you see that very vividly in what's happening in Arizona. The fact that the idea that um, the mainstream media is biased and cannot be relied upon, but a, a former Trump official simultaneously fundraising to send people to visit this audit and reporting is objective truth. The ability to break that loop is, I think, really hard. And Arizona, I think, encapsulates those dynamics very clearly and also shows the difficulty of breaking this in the future. I mean, people thought that Trumpism was a might be a fading phenomenon, that electoral rebuke would end it or, or lead it to its dissipation. And it doesn't seem to me like it, it really has. Okay, thank you both. We'll talk to someone who trains election administrators in a moment. But first, the usual reminder, now is the time to subscribe to The Economist. If you don't already, you'll find the best offer at economist.com slash uspod. As well as Idris's great report from Arizona, this week's issue launches our new normalcy index. It tracks data like flights, traffic, and retailing across 50 countries to monitor how the recovery from the pandemic is going. You can also hear more about that on the Jab podcast. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode. The Arizona audit is part of a wider pattern of state-level Republicans seeking to undermine the bipartisan work of election officials. Election administrators have had their work challenged in courts, and state legislatures have intervened to strip them of their responsibilities. Right before last year's election, we spoke to Kathleen Hale of Auburn University. She trains and certifies election officials across the country and was memorably calm and reassuring about their ability to get the job done amid the pressures of partisanship and a pandemic. I've been speaking to her again this week to get an update. The 2020 election, from an administrative point of view, was a tremendous success. Experts in all fields really agree that from a security perspective, from a cybersecurity perspective, which was a big concern, from a you know physical security, accuracy, integrity, when you think about what election administrators were asked to do, which is essentially build the machine while they were flying it and then turn a corner and do it again, that was 2020. They had an exceptional challenge in every state and really rose to the challenge in every state, even when the election results were contested and recounted and audited and all of the normal things that that would go on. Several of the people who stood firm after the November election and acted with integrity are being replaced. Uh, and many apparently have received death threats. What effect does that have on the people who might otherwise be coming forward to be trained as election administrators by you and by others? The climate for election administrators, for election professionals now, is very concerning. This is a a public service, relatively modestly paid, typical local level government job, um, sometimes at the state level. And it's just been, it's, it's unprecedented the extent to which um, local election officials and state officials have been harassed, have been threatened. It's very disturbing. And, and it, it, it will have an effect. That said, the people who do this work are deeply committed to doing this work. 
it's hard. It has a really unusual pace and a re really unusual set of, of stressors. And the people who do it love to do it. The field will lose some people. The field will gain some people who see this as a, you know, an area to make a difference. And the idea that election administrators are being vilified in this process is, is really, is really stunning. I'm still puzzling over how we are able to put them in this category where they're not even human, when they are our friends and our neighbors. Our kids play together. We go to church together. We go to school together. We're part of a community. They aren't alien. And, and yet we've managed to, to put them in that space. And uh, I'm very concerned about that. And that's really the problem of public trust. Can you describe some of the threats that election administrators who you've trained or worked with have received? The circumstances are troubling. They include phone calls, um, threatening someone's family, you know, the we know where you live kinds of phone calls. Um, we know where your family lives. We know where your children go to school. Having your picture on your office website Seeing it then on social media in the crosshairs of a, you know, of a gun, it, it can only be perceived as threatening. Picketing outside your home, picketing outside your home when you're not there, but your children are there. People that I do know well have been extremely traumatized by this. John, you'll remember when we talked to Kathleen before the 2020 election, she was very sanguine. She's not at all sanguine now. I mean, she still sounded to me more sanguine than I am. <laughs> I really admire her confident belief that the field of election administration will gain people who do it because they want to make a difference and run elections well. I don't think that's true. I worry that it will gain people who see this as a political job, who see administering elections as a way to help their party. That's a very big difference. Those jobs, I know that the election administrators are often members of parties and appointed by parties, but it's traditionally been seen as a nonpartisan job, a way of ensuring that elections are run well and that people can have confidence in them. I worry that in the current environment, the people who will be attracted to these jobs are ones who want to help the candidate from their chosen party win. And that doesn't serve anyone from any party well in the long run. You're already seeing that happen. If you look at the Republican primary candidates to be secretaries of state in places that Biden very narrowly won, places like Arizona and Georgia and Michigan, you see exactly that. You see candidates whose entire candidacy is premised on the idea that the previous election was stolen and that they need to be in charge of elections to prevent future steals. Is a remarkable departure from, as you said, the norm that even though people were elected on partisan slates, that they administered elections in a fair and and free manner. And those people, if they are elected, you know, 2022 is probably going to be a better year for Republicans than it is Democrats, will be in place for the 2024 election. And if you imagine, you know, we all read quite a lot about Brad Raffensperger, who's the Republican Secretary of State in Georgia, who Trump called in that extraordinary phone call that was recorded and asked to find 11,780 votes. Can you imagine if, if instead of Raffensperger, there was someone who said, yes, Mr. President, I will try to find those votes for you. How much deeper of a democratic and constitutional crisis would America have been plunged into? We didn't realize, I think, in 2020 quite how close we came 
to I mean, we did come to a democratic crisis, but how much worse also it could have been and how thin the line was. And one of the worries that I hope this piece gets across is that it's it's been easy to miss the fact that I think those norms and the, the, the buffers that were already emaciated, I think, are, are eroding still. And that can be easy to miss when the president's a Democrat and, and Trump's out of power. But I think it's, it's a very important development in, in American democracy. Idris, one of the things that I think is so great about your piece, one of the reasons why it's so important, is that over the past six months, as Republican legislatures have passed laws related to, to elections and voting, a lot of the attention has been paid to measures that make it harder to vote. And I think that is not really the issue that people should be worried about. I think as you point out in your piece, what's really happening, where the battle is really being fought is over the counting of votes, the administration of elections. That's a very different set of concerns, right? Yeah, I I agree. I mean, the changes that are being wrought to the mechanics of certification of elections and the kinds of people who are going to be running for chief elections administration positions is, in my view, terra incognita for American democracy. The vote suppression and vote ID conversation has been ongoing for a few decades. And to be honest, the evidence that political scientists and and economists have been able to, to gather so far about whether vote ID requirements affect turnout has been fairly minimal. It's been very hard to detect an effect. Now, I think that on sort of democratic principles, the idea that one party would be agitating to have fewer people to vote through the erection of bureaucratic hoops because of a threat of fraud that is really pretty much non-existent is in its own right distasteful and and probably bad for democracy. But the the narrative that the Democrats seem to be in in full belief of that there is a concerted and and successful effort of voter suppression is I think misguided. I, I believe that you know these threats are asymmetric, but to some extent you know you are undermining democratic legitimacy when you give the impression that the other side is gaming the voting rules such that your side is unable to win. you know, And I think that the focus has been misplaced, particularly given that this new threat to the way that elections are conducted has emerged. Idris, you mentioned voter suppression. One of the things that just happened is that in a case concerning measures that Arizona put in place for last year's election, the court ruled that Arizona's bans on ballot harvesting and counting ballots that were cast in the wrong precinct were allowed to stand. That all seems fair enough. But beyond that, it has worrying implications for how Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act can function in practice. In his ruling, Samuel Alito ruled that mere inconveniences do not provide cause to sue under Section 2, which bars racially discriminatory voting laws. So what that means in practice, I think, is that states are much freer to impose measures that make it more inconvenient for people to vote. So the fact that the lines are longer in majority minority precincts, for example, does not provide grounds to sue, does not require the remedy of the federal government. Beyond that, I think it also has implications for Congress's power to regulate elections full stop. So you're quite right that this this concern over, over who counts votes is really crucial and we've been missing it. Beyond that, I think the ruling makes it much harder for people who want to challenge voting laws that place heavier burdens on non-white voters than white voters. I think people had hoped that Section 2 would provide a remedy for that, and the court seems very skeptical of that going forward. All right, thank you both. We'll be back in a moment to think some more about where this leaves the Republican Party.
Let's talk a bit more about what's going on in the Republican Party right now and where this might leave them as next year's midterm elections approach. Idris, in your reporting this week, you spoke to a heavyweight of Arizona politics. Yeah, that's right. I got the chance to speak with Jeff Flake. He was a longtime congressman from Arizona of libertarian faction of the Republican Party, who then served as a senator for the state alongside John McCain. And like John McCain, he was one of the few elected Republicans to criticize President Trump even after he had secured the nomination and control of the Republican Party. For hardcore Republicans, Arizona is Mecca right now, and they're doing their pilgrimage to come and and watch this audit go forward. But in Arizona, some 78%, I think, of registered Republicans or respondents in a poll identifying themselves as Republicans believe that the election was stolen. State elected officials are responding to their constituents. You know, representative government has always meant that uh, those elected are supposed to understand things perhaps better than those that elect them. They've been able to study the budget or read classified material, or they simply spend more time at it. And they should be willing, in some cases, to tell their constituents, this is just wrong. You saw a similar rationale in the Senate also, the U.S. Senate, when when people were objecting to the the certification, right? I'm just raising concerns that my constituents have, you know, and I, you yeah. know, I wonder whether there's sometimes less attention to where those concerns are coming from. Oh, it's, it's a vicious loop, obviously, yeah. because of these, these same elected officials will say, I'm just responding to my constituents, but their constituents are responding to them. Yeah. And if enough of them would stand up and say, this is crazy. No, this was a free and fair election. Our guy lost. Then their constituents would uh, ultimately get over it. Too few elected officials are willing to take that stand. Donald Trump uh, remains uh, popular and he can can still pick up a phone and generate a primary for somebody and uh, make their life particularly difficult. I, I wonder how you break that loop then. You know, in Maricopa County, there are obviously the, the supervisors are, are saying, no, this was free and fair and the recorder and such, but, you know, not more prominent officials than that. How does, how does this get broken if it's a vicious loop? Well, ultimately, it, it's broken when Republicans keep losing elections. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, that, that's, that's the case. In Arizona, we're represented in the U.S. Senate by two Democrats for the first time in 70 years. That hasn't seemed to wake up the party enough yet. It's uh, going to be a longer process than I had hoped. You know, ultimately, people recognize that, yeah, there are a lot of people who firmly believe Donald Trump won the last election. But in the end, that's not enough people to win statewide elections. And that's why you have so many Republicans also running scared at the state level and trying to put in place provisions that make it more difficult, frankly, for the people they don't want to vote to vote. Mm -hmm. And, And also to allow or enable state legislatures to assume the role that elected or appointed officials have taken in the past with regard to certifying election results. And that's what's really dangerous um, is, I mean, if, if we had in place provisions that would have allowed Arizona's legislature to certify the results or decertify the results, they likely would have gone the other direction with no evidence. That's really dangerous. That edge is very close, I think, to a democratic crisis, doesn't it? It, it really does. Uh, I mean, that's when you look at the emails what the Trump uh, administration was trying to do with its own Department of Justice. 
And then you add to that, if you had had some officials in Georgia, Arizona, uh, maybe Wisconsin or Michigan, who would have not acted appropriately, we could be in a whole different world right now. We're more fragile than we thought we were. So, Idris, as Senator Flake outlines there, Arizona is in a hole here. How widespread is this kind of thing? Well, you're seeing some legislation already be passed in Republican-led states. In Georgia, for example, Raffensperger, who is Secretary of State, has been stripped of his position as chair of the State Elections Board. The board has also been given new powers to remove the leadership of county election boards. There is a newly created legal avenue in Texas to sue to overturn Um, election results in counties using a lower standard of evidence than was previously used. There's a newly empowered state board of elections run by the legislature ultimately in Arkansas. In Arizona, there are efforts to limit the power of the secretary of state that are being signed into law. She's currently a Democrat and is opposed to the efforts to audit the Maricopa results as well. So you, you are seeing already some of this stuff getting widespread. And John, one of the problems with politics based on conspiracy theories is that once they've taken root, they're just so hard to dislodge in people's minds. That's right. Conspiracy theories by their nature are unfalsifiable. So that once you have people ready to believe, absent any evidence whatsoever that this election was stolen, then you also find the party hospitable to people who believe, you know, that airline trails are poisoning you or that vaccines don't work. It becomes really hard to reinstitute rationality. I think Senator Flake has a point that the only way this goes away is for Republicans to start losing elections. But there's no guarantee. There's no telling when that might happen. And in the interim, there's a tremendous amount of institutional damage and damage that really could be done to the country. Yeah, I think you also need to think about the sort of fundamental drivers of these things if you want to think about how how they reverse and ultimately are resolved. And, you know, that's that's tougher. Some people, Jonathan Rauch, who's, who's someone I spoke to for this piece, said that American democracy had no inoculation to organized propaganda in the same way that European democracies with more experience of populism did, and that the Republican Party, in his view, had organized itself around a propagandistic mission abetted by conservative media and these sorts of things. And our ability to sort of recognize that and to deal with that is limited. I think that that's, that gets a little bit closer to, and I think he has a new book uh, that's coming out on, on this issue, but that gets a little bit closer, I think, to what's ultimately driving it. I think the analysis needs to be a bit deeper than how could you possibly believe these crazy things? I mean, it's remarkable that belief that the last election was stolen is so high or uh, is so high among Republicans. But uh, you do also need to think about why that's happening. And I, I also don't think that for that reason, all of this goes away. If Trump were to go away, if he weren't, if he weren't going to run, I think the idea that Trumpism is a sort of singular phenomenon within the Republican Party is has always been wrong. I think he has a unique ability to supercharge trends that are already within the party, nativism and growing distrust of expertise and, and the like. But uh, I don't think that he he is so singular that he managed to cause it, and nor is he so impactful that when he ultimately is no longer in charge of the party, that these these currents will dissipate. 
Idris, our leader has a number of pragmatic fixes that it offers, amending the Electoral Count Act, you know, measures to restore confidence in democracy. Does that seem like enough to you or do you think we're still whistling past the graveyard? No, it's it's not enough. The Electoral Count Act, which was passed in 1887, is definitely a bad law that enables uh, democratic crises and can be fixed. That's an obvious fix of low-hanging fruit, if you like. Ultimately, the correction for this stuff has to come from within the party. And that's a certainly a much more difficult thing to to drive. I mean, already we see that the party is resistant to dissidents on, on this point, right? Bill Gates, we heard, basically feels like his political future in Arizona is over. Flake is no longer in the Senate. Other members of, of the Republican Party who were quite critical, with the exception of Mitt Romney, because he walks on water in Utah, are no longer in office. And you already see already that the, the 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach Donald Trump, nine of them have primary challenges. Trump is furiously trying to gather a 10th. Liz Cheney was evicted from her position of leadership in the House Republican caucus, not because of her undermining of traditional conservatism, but because when reporters asked her, what do you think about Trump in January 6th, she would tell them what she thought and she wouldn't equivocate. That to me is a damaging dynamic because it insulates the party from correction from within. And ultimately, that's where the stuff has to originate. I mean... As someone who has reported from both Russia and China, I think it's extraordinary that we're using the word dissidents to refer to people who disagree within an American political party, which is always coalitional. And it's even more extraordinary that it fits, that you see Republicans who do not go along with Trumpism finding themselves effectively exiled. I think that's a very dangerous place for a political party to be. Obviously, a party has to stand for something and, and hold certain ideals, and it, it can't be open to everyone. But in this case, it's people who are standing up for what had until really 2015 been inarguable sort of foundational American ideals who now find themselves without a political future in their own party. Well, I think we all hope that we might be able to leave this story behind or at least focus on it a bit less after President Biden was inaugurated in January. But that's not the case. I'm sure that this is something we're going to come back to again in the future. Before I let you two go, I have a quiz for you. The Economist first sent a correspondent to Arizona in 1958 to report on the state's rapid growth. The paper noted three key demographics driving population growth since World War II. The first were ex-airmen, who had trained in its clear blue skies. Second were tourists, returning to work or retire. The third came for health reasons. What condition did the dry climate ameliorate? Tuberculosis? Yeah, I was going to say pneumonia, something lung-related. You're both very close. As asthma, so... Uh lung-related, but not as serious as pneumonia. The Economist also noted the importance of air conditioning in making Arizona's climate tolerable. The carrier company installed the first aircon units in the White House in 1930. Previous efforts to escape Washington's summer heat included the construction of a screened-in porch on the roof, where President Taft liked to sleep. AC first spread through America during the 1920s in which commercial buildings? Uh, Slaughterhouses? Slaughterhouses? Slaughterhouses is a good shout. It was, in fact, cinemas. (laughs) 
The Rivoli Theatre in New York's Times Square had William Carrier install the first unit in 1925. Thanks to his invention, city cinemas became an oasis of cool in the summer, turning Hollywood's fallow months into its biggest blockbuster season. So that's nil-nil. Yeah. <laughs> that's honours even, Idris. I think you've excelled yourself there. Congratulations. <laughs> we, we both got some sort of pulmonary ailment for number one. Right. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I think you get half a point for number one. So half half a point each. That's pretty good to, to match Fasman. Congratulations. <laughs> that's that's good going. I mean, AC in slaughterhouses is a good idea. It is a good idea. I continue to believe that human settlement in Arizona was a mistake, <laughs> but I think that's neither here nor there. All right. Well, with honors even, you can both sign off with your heads held high. Thank you, Idris. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Thank you very much. Thanks also to Nico Rofast and to John Shields for producing. If you like the podcast, please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is radio at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe, stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. <laughs> <laughs>